Go with me for a moment, if you will, and I want you to use your imagination. I'm going to describe for us something, and as we do that, I want you to just put all of your kind of preconceived notions about these things, I want you to just kind of put them out of your mind and go with me to this place, okay? I want you to imagine that you're a stranger to this land, you're a stranger to this place, and you are experiencing something for the very first time. And I'm going to describe to you a place of worship. I'm going to describe to you this this place of worship, and there are these worship cathedrals that have been uh, erected all across this country and around the world, and you are experiencing it for the very, very first time, all right? So as you approach this cathedral, you're in this line of cars, There are cars lined up, and they're different colors and different sizes, have different number of people in them. And you're waiting, and and, and you're just all waiting patiently to make your way into this thing called a parking lot. And this parking lot is just this vast area of asphalt. And it's there, and there's, there's colorful dotted cars and people in all these different kinds of places. And as you look in front of you, you see this cathedral. It's massive. It's a massive cathedral that's been built there. And you make your way to one of the many grand entrances that this place has that draws you in. It's welcoming, it's inviting. And as you make your way forward, you notice that there are people there that know what's happening and are accustomed to this place. And then there are people that don't know exactly what's happening. And and there are kiosks at different places to point them in the right direction. There are these places where, where there is gathering of people to figure out what the lay of the land is like inside this cathedral. And once you make your way inside, you're able to see that this cathedral has many different chapels all throughout. It's a maze almost of different chapels and different areas off to the side. Each one is decorated and, and, and has all their kind of iconography outside of it, inside of it, everywhere you look. And each place you decide to go into one of these cathedrals. And, and as you enter, there's a representative of that cathedral that's there. And they're, they're welcoming you into this chapel. And they're going to be there and they're going to walk with you through this experience in the chapel. At some point, you're going to be able to maybe even make an offering and take something home with you that's branded with the iconography of that chapel. You're going to be able to take it back with you, and it's going to be wrapped in the colorful packages of that chapel's specific iconography. And maybe this morning you've already figured it out, but what I'm describing to you is a shopping mall today. It's a shopping mall. And maybe you went with me there, maybe you figured that out, but maybe you didn't. And I'm using that example a little bit tongue-in-cheek, But I do want us to stop and realize really quickly all of the different places and activities that are forming us and and shaping us consciously and subconsciously. And the mall is one of these places. Nobody told you how to go and be a consumer. You were formed and shaped. You went maybe with your mom and dad and you figured out what a mall looks like or what a store experience, a shopping experience was supposed to feel like. You observed And you were molded and shaped and formed into this narrative of consumerism, right? So we were molded and shaped and formed, and so you know what that experience is like. You know what it's like. You know that we have erected these massive cathedrals across 
our country and really around the world. There's these places. And I, while I'm speaking in, in tongue-in-cheek, I do want us to realize that these are the kind of things that are molding us and shaping us each and every day. Each and every day. Our culture is forming us in ways that we can't even perceive or notice. And as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, a Christ follower, that should get your attention. That should get your attention that you are being molded and shaped in ways that sometimes are counter to Christ. But you don't even know it. I don't even know it. Sometimes they're not necessarily counter, but sometimes they are. We're molded and we're shaped in all these different ways. I've noticed several places and experiences that are molding and shaping us all the time without us even knowing it. A a moment ago I described a mall, but I also want to talk to you a little bit about what it's like Uh, Some of you experience this as well. How many of you, you go to school, maybe growing up, you went to school and there was an announcement time, a morning announcement time. And as part of the announcements, maybe you had to uh, stand and participate in the Pledge of Allegiance. Anybody? Okay, just a few of us. Okay, okay, maybe I'm wrong about that experience. I don't know. No, we're molded and we're shaped by that experience, though. We learn the pledge in those moments. We learn it, and we're molded, and we're shaped by it in those moments. The same thing happens on Friday nights, right? I grew up in Texas, and uh, there's no lights that are brighter than Friday night lights, okay? There's nothing brighter than Friday night lights, and there's something about it. There's an energy, an atmosphere in that place, and you come in, and you are actually molded and shaped in that experience, believe it or not. You know the songs that the band's going to play. You know the different things that are about to happen, about to take place at that game. The band maybe is coming onto the field, and they, before the game, they start to play a specific song. And everybody in the crowd rises to their feet, and they put their hand over their heart, or they take their hat off. Why? Because they've been molded and shaped by the experience of being a part of the national anthem. And it's kind of scary to realize that we're molded and shaped in these ways without even knowing it. Without even knowing it. It's kind of crazy. The the trouble is that some of those things that are molding and shaping us have a deeper narrative that's taking place. There's something deeper going on than just what is happening on the surface. That shopping experience I described a moment ago, it's molding us and shaping us into this narrative of consumerism. But there's other narratives out there that are molding us and shaping us into the narrative of individualism or even nationalism. And we don't even always realize it. And all of those things are are competing with one another to mold us and shape us and to form us. Whether we know it or not, we're all being discipled by something. We're all being discipled by something. I mentioned a moment ago, um, Friday night, Friday night lights. And it's something that molded and shaped me, if I'm being really honest. Something that molded and shaped me, and, and I loved, I loved Texas high school football. Like, there's just nothing like it. And I love Bentonville football. It's a lot of fun as well, but, but there was something really special about Friday Night Lights. But it was deeper than that, too. It wasn't just the game, right? It wasn't just the game. I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. I went to Amarillo High School. And this is a very tradition-laden school. There are traditions about everything that happens there. 
And there's always a pep rally on Fridays before a football game. And the whole student body gathers into the gym and participates in the pep rally. They participate in, in, in huge ways. They know the cheers. They know the chants. They know the songs that are about to take place. And there's an order to the way that things happen. As a freshman, uh, we had this thing called fish camp. And so before your freshman year of, of high school started, you went up to the school and you spent time, yes, getting to know where classes were, where rooms were, and, and, and learning the lay of the land. But you were also beginning to be molded, shaped, and formed into the culture of Emerald High School, okay? You were beginning to be molded and shaped into that culture because they would then take you, there was different students, older students, that would take you in as they were leading you around. They would take you into the gymnasium, and they would take you there, and they would say, look, there's going to be pep rallies, and you need to know what's going to happen at a pep rally because you need to be a part of what's going to happen at this pep rally. Okay, sounds great. So they take you in and they, they put us over here and they said, okay, now, all of the freshmen are going to sit here in this section. All of the sophomores sit here. All of the juniors sit over here and all of the seniors sit over here. Okay. And they began to teach us the different songs and the cheers and the chants and all of that kind of thing. And if I'm being really honest this morning, as a freshman... I mean, I was 15 years old. I, I was like, okay, like, this seems kind of silly, right? Like, these cheers and these chants, it can't be that important, right? It can't be that big of a deal. And specifically, I got to tell you, they, they, we had a class cheer. And the class cheer, like, they made it out to be this big deal. And then they told us the words. And I was like, that is the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. It was the silliest thing, right? It, the, the cheer literally was this. Freshmen stand, raise your hand, go freshmen. <laughs> Is that silly? I mean, I, maybe it was just me, but in that moment they told me that. And I was like, okay, look, I know that I'm only a freshman, but that is silly, <laughs> right? You can't stand there and tell me at fish camp that this is important. Because I didn't feel like it was important. Why do I need to know that? Well, friends, let me tell you, it's important. Because we showed up that first Friday to that first pep rally. We went and we sat in our section like we were supposed to. But it began to become really obvious to us that we needed to learn that culture. Because everyone in that room was all in. They were all in. They were all about that time. They were all about getting pumped up, and they were excited about the football game that was coming. But more than that, we got to this class cheer time. Y'all, this class cheer time is serious business, okay? But of course, they make the freshmen go first in the order. And all the freshmen kind of have the similar attitude to the attitude I had. So you're at this first pep rally and they get to us, and you're kind of mumbling along, freshman, what is it, freshman stand? Oh, fresh, okay, and you're trying to get through this thing, you get through it, and you feel pretty proud of yourself. Okay, I participated. Well, then they moved to the sophomores. And holy cow, the sophomores were loud. 
right? They were, of course, every chance the same. So a sophomore stand, raise your hand, okay? Nothing unique or different about any of them. But it's all about a competition to see which class can be the loudest at the pep rally or do the craziest thing, which probably drove the administration nuts. But it's beside the point. So the sophomores came, and they were pretty loud. But then the juniors went, and it got louder. And by the time we got to seniors, all of us freshmen were like, we got to learn this stuff. Right? Because I came into that thinking, I'm not going to look like a fool. Right? Because you know, as a teenager, you want to be cool. You're, so you're standing there. You're like, okay, what's going on? Oh, freshman stand. Yeah, okay, freshman stand. Raise your hand. Go freshman. But then all of a sudden, I didn't want to look like a fool for not knowing it. I didn't want to look like a fool for not knowing it. It became really obvious that we needed to learn what we were supposed to do. We needed to figure out the culture. We needed to be formed and shaped in this culture. And I say all that to say this. I became so all in to this culture at Amarillo High School that I became one of the leaders in this culture. I began to be one of the people that led the way. I got so into it, I became a cheerleader. And against my better judgment this morning, I've brought a picture to share with you all of Aaron Webster, what he looked like in high school. Look at that guy. He's a little different. Look at those dead eyes he's got. It's great. So, I got so in. I was all in. And just in case you were curious, I, this is not just a Photoshop or anything. I have a megaphone with me this morning from high school. I'm going to preach the rest of my sermon at you just like this. That works for y'all. Um, it's probably not a good experience for people online. But I was so in. I got so in and I was so inundated in this culture that I began to become one of those people that taught the cheers. I began to be one of those people that wanted to make sure all the freshmen knew that this was important. This mattered to us. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. And I was molded and shaped to be a part of the Emerald High School culture. And I was being discipled in that moment without even realizing that that's what was going on. And we're all being discipled by something. And my question this morning is, what are you being discipled by? What are you being discipled by this morning? Discipleship is a, is a term that many of you here are familiar with. But if you aren't, I want to take just a moment, just, and by a moment, I mean literally just a moment, and define what discipleship is. To be a disciple is to be a follower or a student of a particular person or philosophy. To be a follower or a student of a particular person or philosophy. A disciple follows closely and tries to model their life after the one or the philosophy that they are following. They're following closely, they're watching closely, and they're trying to become like that person, or they're trying to become more and more shaped and molded in that philosophy. So again, I want to ask you, what are you being discipled by? Who are the people that you're following? What are the philosophies that you're a student of, consciously or subconsciously? You see, there was a group of men that we read about in the Gospels, and they're known simply as the disciples. 
And these were people that Jesus had called specifically to come and follow him. And you see, following Jesus was a big deal, all right? It was a big deal, much like getting inundated in the culture of Emerald High School was a big deal. It was a pretty big deal to be called by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was a rabbi. And being a disciple of a rabbi was a prestigious position for people in that culture. You see, these people were the best and the brightest. These people were the ones that had the Torah memorized frontward and backward. They knew the law. They were familiar with what it meant to be a Jew in that day. And to be called by a rabbi was a pretty big deal. Usually to be a disciple, the students were selected as the best of the best. They would start out and they had like a basic school, basic schooling that they did, and everybody participated in that. But then they only selected the best and the brightest of that group to move on to the next. Everybody else went to work in their family trades and their different things. And then there was another level and they would select only the best and the brightest from that. And so you get the idea. It's weeding people out as you get higher and higher. And so by the time you're called to be a disciple, you're the best of the best. You are the best of the best. However, you may know this about Jesus and you may not, but this morning I want you to know Jesus tends to flip everything upside down. He has a tendency to just change the way everybody else thinks. He has a tendency to change the way people operate. And so he does the same thing when choosing his disciples. Because his disciples weren't the smartest. They weren't the best of the best. They were everyday people. They were everyday people. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. People that others hated. Wouldn't be respected. And yet those are the people that Jesus is choosing. If you today were to choose people to be your disciples, you probably would want to choose people that would make you look good. I would. I'd want to make sure that I picked people that represented me well. Instead, Jesus picks the sinners. He picks the fishermen that have no standing in the community. He picks the tax collector. He picks the people that are hated. And he chooses them to follow him, even though they had no business being the disciples of any rabbi, much less one that would become the savior of the world. They have no business in that role. And Matthew records for us the calling of his first disciples, the calling of, of Jesus' first disciples. And we read it in Matthew chapter 4, and here's what it says. It says, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they were fishing for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come and follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing the nets. And he called them to come too. I love this detail. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. You see, Jesus calls these disciples. He calls these men to come and follow, and they recognize immediately this is a big deal. 
They know what it's like. They grew, they grew up. They, they know what it's like being a Jew, and they knew what it was like to be a disciple, or what it was supposed to be to be a disciple. It was a prestigious position. And so immediately they drop their nets, and they go, and they follow Jesus. I don't think they knew what they were getting into. As we read the story further, we kind of figure out, like, I don't think they expected what they got. I don't think that they expected to, to, to have this rabbi lead them into uncomfortable places, but that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what he did. Being a disciple of Jesus, as they would soon learn, meant being uncomfortable. It would mean leaving their families and their livelihoods behind. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because I don't know about you, but me, this morning, as I think about being a follower of Jesus, if I try to put myself in their shoes... I'm making a living, modest living, fishing. I'm a fisherman by trade. I don't know anything else. Yeah, I went to the basic Bible school, right? I got my basics. But I certainly don't know the Torah frontwards and backwards like disciples of other rabbis. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to have to leave my livelihood behind. I'm not going to make any money. I'm going to have to leave my family behind. Why would they do that? And the reason they did it is because they, they were after this prestige that comes with it. But they didn't expect everything that was going to come. They didn't expect it. They left because the call to come and see or come and follow sparked an interest in them. It intrigued them. They did it because Jesus was a rabbi. They did it because... This kind of call didn't come to everyday people. The call to come and follow and be a disciple wasn't one that came to just everyday people all the time. And yet, here it was, right in front of them. So they immediately leave their nets. The disciples answered the call, and as a result, their lives were changed. You see, these men had been molded and shaped by Roman and Jewish politics which, by the way, are at odds all the time, but that's how they were molded and shaped. They had been molded and shaped by their occupations as fishermen, as tax collectors. They'd been molded and shaped by the sins that they had committed. They were molded and shaped in a lot of imperfect ways. There was a lot that Jesus had to sift through in those men. But now Jesus was inviting them to be molded and shaped in an entirely new way. You see, answering the call was a commitment to let go of everything that they thought that they knew and become more and more like Jesus. His way was counter to the ways of this world, and it still is today. And just like the disciples, you and I have been called. Everyone in this room has been called. Everyone has been chosen to be a disciple of Jesus. He's calling you. The last two weeks have been pretty amazing. We had Easter Sunday, and what an amazing Sunday of celebrating what, what Christ came to do. And then last week, we got to see stories of how God's still moving and working in people's lives. We got to see stories of baptism. We got to hear stories of, of new members and baby dedications. We got to celebrate what God is up to. 
And all of that is part of this discipleship journey. All of that is different ways in, that people are answering the call of Jesus to come and see, to come and to follow. And just like the disciples, we all have a choice. He's calling you and me to come and follow. You can be a disciple of anything. You can choose what you're a disciple of. You can be a disciple of consumerism. You can be a disciple of your favorite sports team or politics. And if I'm being real honest, as I prepared this week, I had to check myself on some of the things that I'm being discipled by. What are the things that, that for myself, am I, am I letting disciple me that maybe are not in the same ways that Jesus would want me to be discipled? You can choose to be a disciple of anything, but Jesus is calling you to be a disciple of his. Jesus is calling you to follow him. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to push you. It's going to push you out of your comfort zone. It's going to rearrange your priorities. And here's the thing about comfort zones and priorities. That sounds really good. And we all want change. We all want things to be better. But it's painful to get there. We want things to be better. We want things to change. But when the rubber meets the road <laughs> and you're in the middle of it and you're uncomfortable, that's nah, not very fun. But that's what Jesus is calling us to if we're actually going to follow him. He's calling us to that. And, and here's the thing. The end result of that is a relationship with the Savior of the world. And that's pretty worth it. It's pretty worth it this morning. The end result of us getting out of our comfort zones and rearranging our priorities as a relationship with the Savior of the world. And here's the things you need to know. Something you need to know is that the call of Jesus will mold and shape you. The call of Jesus will mold and shape you. It's going to mold and shape you in ways that you didn't even know. When we choose to answer the call to follow Jesus, we're transformed. We become transformed from the inside out. Paul, another one of Jesus' disciples, later on, he reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, that we're new creations when we follow him. Here's what it says. It says, at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. Amen? Amen. I'm thankful for that transformation. I'm thankful that I'm molded and shaped in a different way. Because if we look the same as a Christ follower as we did before we were a Christ follower... What does, that, what does that even mean? Like, are you really a follower? Are you really a follower? Becoming an everyday disciple means that you shouldn't look the same as you did when you started. You are a new creation because you're no longer molded in the patterns and ways of this world, but instead you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We shouldn't look like we did before. And by the way, some of you in this room are lifelong Christians. Some of you in this room are just like me, and you don't know a time where you weren't in church. 
I've been in church my whole life. I don't remember necessarily when I first got to know Jesus. It's, it's always just been a part of my life. I'm thankful for his provision in that way, by the way. I'm thankful for that story that I have. I'm thankful for the grace that he has showed me all along the way. But my life today, even as a follower of Jesus back then, doesn't look like it does today. Because the journey of discipleship is not one that you arrive when you become a disciple. You don't arrive, you don't cross the finish line when you say yes to Jesus. You don't cross the finish line. It's just a beginning point. It's a beginning point of being molded and shaped and formed. It's a beginning point of him just refining you. We shouldn't look the same as we did before. I have a, a friend from, from years ago. I had this friend, and, and I knew her from uh, church camp growing up. And uh, we weren't particularly close, uh, but I knew her. Graduated from high school, went on, did my thing. It was years later, and all of a sudden this friend reached out to me on Facebook I had never, I hadn't talked to her, I hadn't thought about her in years. And she reached out and she wasn't a follower of Jesus. She wasn't a follower of Jesus at that time and, and she would ask questions about things. She knew I was a pastor and so she would ask me questions about things and she would, um, you know, had a very circular conversations, if I'm being really honest. It was really frustrating I would sit there, I would, I would try to give encouragement, and I would try to, try to move her along in this journey that she was on, but it just felt like this over and over. And if I'm being honest, there were many times where I was like, I just, I don't think I can respond to this. It's wearing me out. It's wearing me out. And so she would have conversations with me off and on, and last fall, she messaged me, and there was something different about some of the questions she was asking. There was something different that I could tell just in the way she was talking to me. You see, Jesus had been working on her. Jesus had been working on her life. And right there in Facebook Messenger, which is, I never thought this would happen, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, I'm texting back to her some answers to some of these questions she has. Or the best answers I knew to give. And I'm, that we're talking and, and it finally hit me. I'm like, you know, I said, you know, have, have you ever actually accepted Christ as your Savior? She said, no. I said, okay. Would, would you like to? And she said, I think so. And so, again... Something I never thought I would do in Facebook Messenger. I'm typing. And she says, I don't know how to pray that prayer. So I literally typed out a sinner's prayer in Facebook Messenger. And I sent it to her and I said, pray this. She said, I prayed it. And she accepted Christ into her life. And the conversations we've had since that point have been totally different. Because she's a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. 
she doesn't look the same as she did before. She still has questions about her faith, but they look different. They look different. I no longer see the same kind of doubt and insecurity that I saw in her. Instead, she's being transformed into a new creation, and she's being able to be confident in who Christ is. It's important to, to just note right here that transformation is ongoing for all of us. I mentioned it a moment ago, but if you became, became a disciple 30 years ago, you should still be in this process of being molded and shaped and refined. You see, Jesus' disciples weren't called and at that moment crossed the finish line. No. They were called and they began to follow. And they began to embark with Jesus on a journey, quite literally on a journey, as they walked around the country of Israel. So the call of Jesus will mold and shape you, but the call of Jesus will also mold and shape others. The call of Jesus will also mold and shape others. Accepting the call will undoubtedly attract attract the attention of other people. If people know you before Christ, and then they see you after Christ, they'll probably notice a difference. Because you're a new creation. Something is different. And that shift inside you will affect other people. See, following Jesus means that you will love others deeper and that you will be on the lookout for ways that you can be there for them. This is everyday discipleship, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Being an everyday disciple means you love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, but, but this is a busy season of life for me. And I mentioned that earlier in the service, but this has been a really busy season of life for me. And, and certainly I have schedules and agendas, and my wife keeps track of all that for me because I'm scattered. So um, you, can, you can thank her that I even made it here this morning to talk to you all. But, but we're busy. We're busy people, and we fill those schedules up. And sometimes there's a tendency for myself that I have. I can really put my head down and just focus on what's right in front of me and what I have to get done, and the different things on that agenda, the different things on that, on that schedule, and I can just be oblivious to what's happening around me, or the needs that people have around me. But being an everyday disciple, and being molded and shaped by the call of Jesus, should shape other people, because we should be opening our eyes to the world around us. That doesn't mean we don't still have schedules. That doesn't mean we don't still have agendas and things we have to get done. But we should be open and attentive to the needs of others around us. Uh, years ago, I, I, got into a, I got into a habit. And maybe you're familiar with this. Somebody would share a need with me. And I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I'll pray for you. And inevitably, sometimes I would walk away from that experience and I would get so back into my own thing, into my own selfishness, that that thing that they requested prayer for that we talked about fell by the wayside and I, man, I didn't get around to praying for it. So one of the things I've tried to do more of in my life in the last few years is to actually stop right then and there when they share that need and pray. 
not long, not a big, overt, huge production of a prayer, but just a prayer. That's a way that I can pay attention to others because my life should look different than it did before I was a Christian. My life should look different to other people. It should affect other people. Jesus' disciples' lives affected other people as well. When we look at the way that they lived their lives before Christ and after he was a part of their lives, it looks totally different. And we're going to get into that right here because the call of Jesus will not only shape you and it won't only shape others, but ultimately it will shape the world. Ultimately it will shape the world. In Matthew 28, verses 18 18 through 20, we read this. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we accept the call of Jesus to follow him, that means we go. That means we want to be disciples who then make disciples. It's one thing for us to be focused and to to be a follower of Jesus. But what he tells us to do is not just to follow him, but to turn around to our neighbor and say, Hey, come follow him too. Come be a disciple too. You need to be on this journey with me. It's going to be awesome. Because just as we celebrated a couple of weeks ago, it really is the best news ever. It will change you, it will change others, and ultimately it can change the world. It can change the world. You see, the only reason that you and I are sitting here in this place together is because the disciples chose to go. The disciples chose from that moment on to go and to take this good news out into the world. They went on mission for God. They went on this mission that Jesus had given them to make disciples. But not just make disciples, make disciples who make disciples. We accept that call. It means that we go. It means that we go. And I don't know about you, but when I think about this idea of discipleship, everyday discipleship affecting the world, That sounds like a really daunting task. And when I read Matthew 28, those verses we just read a moment ago, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by the massive task that that seems to be. It seems to be a massive task for us to undertake. The world? The world? The thing that's important to remember is that the transformation doesn't just end with us, that we are discipling people who disciple people who disciple people. That's called exponential growth. It's called exponential growth. And discipleship is interesting, right? Like we would think that the best way to get the news out to the most people possible is to gather as many people in the same place at once and spread the news. Like, that makes sense to us, right? That makes sense to think that that's the best way to go about this discipleship thing. But 
if we look at the model that Jesus gave us, he doesn't do that at all. Certainly he speaks to crowds, don't get me wrong. But the way the world was transformed was not necessarily through the miracles that he did or through gathering large groups of people. It was by calling 12 men to follow him everywhere he went. That's how the world was changed. He called disciples to come, follow, to come and see. And so even though this task seems daunting, I want you to think about the few people that you can disciple. Who is it that's in your sphere of influence already? Who are the people that you know close by that you can just enter into relationship with? Discipleship for, the, for them, wasn't, it wasn't about these big moments of teaching. It was about literally walking together and living life together. I, I, maybe you've been in these situations before, but one of my favorite things about youth ministry is being able to go on trips and being able to, to spend time together. Because, I, you know, we can get to know one another in a conversation little by little here and there, week after week. But when you really get to know somebody is when you spend time with them. When you get to know the, their little intricacies, their, the way that they do things. And you get to see it up close and personal. And, and so that's one of the reasons I love youth ministry and youth trips in particular. Because those moments help disciple each other. They help us get to know one another better. There's a story that I heard very recently about some missionaries. And uh, maybe you've heard of this, this project. It's called The Jesus Film, and maybe you've heard of it. Um, the Jesus Film, if you don't know, if you're not familiar, they have made the story of Jesus that we read in the Bible into a film. And they go and they show it in these different places, and the, the response to this film is always incredible, right? Like, like the good news of Christ is, is proclaimed, and there are people that come and they give their lives to God and they, they, they give their lives to the Lord. And the numbers that you read from, those, from that Jesus Film Project are, are incredible. But there's this group of missionaries and they had a Jesus Film crew, but they quickly realized something. You see, praying the prayer of salvation is great. We want people to do that. But what they realized is they didn't have the people to continue discipleship after the Jesus film. They didn't have enough people that were being discipled. So what would happen is people would come, they'd give their lives to the Lord, but then they would fall by the wayside and they wouldn't continue in that life because they didn't know what to do next. And so this group of missionaries made a really courageous decision and they chose to send the Jesus film crew home. And that sounds crazy, Right? That sounds crazy because, man, you're getting all these people, one to the Lord, but they weren't able to disciple them. They acknowledged something that they felt was more important. They felt discipleship was more important than just getting them across and saying a prayer. They wanted true transformation. They wanted discipleship to be happening. You know, about the same time I heard that story, I heard, I heard another story and it was a, a not maybe not a story, but but if you were to uh, be a a pastor, a minister, and let's say you were to win uh, three people to the Lord each week throughout the course of your ministry, that'd be pretty incredible. First of all, like let's just say that would that number would be 
astounding. But then they put it up next to this number, and the number was, now, instead of just getting people across the finish line and praying a prayer, what if you chose to be really intentional with three people and you were discipling them for a year each year of your ministry? But you were discipling them to a point where they would then turn around and make three disciples each year. And then they would make three disciples each year. You know what the number would be by the time, let's say you started in ministry at age 25 and you ended about age 65? That number would be about 7 billion. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's 7 to 8 billion people in the world. I find that pretty interesting. Exponential growth. We're supposed to go and reach the world. And that seems overwhelming. It seems overwhelming. But it starts just with a few people. It starts just with a few people, and we can do that. So how do we follow Jesus in everyday ways? So all of that sounds great. Pastor Aaron, we need to be disciples. We need to understand that we're being molded and shaped in the ways of Christ and not in the ways of this world. How do I do that? How do I do that? I just have a couple of things for you this morning. Number one is this. We need to spend time being a good follower. We need to spend time being a good follower, which seems interesting because it seems like we should be leading in these moments, not following we got to spend time being a good follower. How much of your time are you spending being an intentional follower of Jesus? How much time are you spending getting to know him intimately? How much time are you spending getting into scripture and getting to know his stories and your place in that story? How much time do you spend talking to him? How much time do you spend getting away from the craziness and busyness of your schedule and the, all the chaos of life and getting in solitude with God. Solitude's tough to find. Solitude's really tough to find. We have these awesome pocket rectangles that order our lives, right? And they're constantly vibrating and they're constantly going off and they're ringing and puts us on high alert, right? But how much time have you spent getting away from all of that? And getting alone with God and getting to know him so that you can be a good follower so that you can lead other people to follow him as well. The second thing is this. To be an everyday disciple, following Jesus in everyday ways, we have to learn to love our neighbor. You have to learn to love your neighbor. So you have to learn to be a good follower of Jesus and love him. But then you got to learn to love your neighbor. you got to learn to be slow to anger you got to learn to show kindness to other people. I don't know about you, but for me, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, in this age of social media, I have found that I get angrier a lot. Maybe you can relate to that. And I know Pastor Mark's going to, to uh, he's going to touch on some of that as we go throughout this series, but we need to learn to be slow to anger, quick to offer grace, quick to be peacemakers. We need to be quick to seek compassion. We need to learn to be compassionate people. And not just with people that we agree with, right? We need to learn to be compassionate to all people. 
because that's what loving your neighbor looks like. We need to learn to open our eyes, meet the needs of those around us, see the needs of those around us. All of this is easier said than done. It's just easy for me to stand up here and say to you, it's another thing to follow it. Following Jesus means that things in our lives are going to change. Your life is going to change. If you follow Jesus, things will not stay the same. It might mean that our priorities are rearranged, and it might mean that we don't value the things that we used to value, and instead we learn to value one another. And it might mean that we become aware of the things that are vying for our attention and trying to mold and to shape us. Because the reality is, friends, that as we leave this place today, we're going to walk out these doors, we're going to go get in our cars, and we're going to go. Something's going to be vying for your attention to try and mold and shape you. I don't know what, but I know that there are things that are going to be vying for your attention. They're going to be competing with you. And they're going to be competing with this narrative that Jesus shares with us. They're going to tell you that you need to be all in this thing for yourself, that you need to get what's yours, that you need to be selfish. But being a disciple of Jesus looks different than that. Being a disciple of Jesus means that we are molded and shaped and we're changed ourselves, but that we're also changing other people and then ultimately the world is changing around us. And I want to encourage you to be mindful of the competing narratives that will try and hijack your story. I want you to know that whatever it is that is competing, it can't hold a candle to Jesus Christ. It can't hold a candle to him. It can't hold a candle to what he has to offer. So this morning, I want to end with this. I want to just ask you the simple question. What is discipling?